Thanks for being here. Let's say a blessing for studying Torah, and then we'll dive in. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, who makes us sacred through your mitzvot and gives us the mitzvah of engaging in words of Torah. We are at the end of the book of Leviticus. It's a double portion uh, called Bahar and Bukhkotai. And actually, um, uh, th that's, um, um, uh, we were talking before everyone came in about the, the Jewish calendar and how the dates can swing so much um, on the solar calendar that we follow, uh, this, the Gregorian calendar. And the double portions are related to that, Sylvia. We were, mm. When there's a double portion, that two portions get squeezed together during regular years. But during the leap year, because four weeks are added, the double portions are ready to be split mm. up. So every, so every week has a Torah portion. But because this isn't a leap year, it's a double portion, Parshat Bahar, and Parshat the Chukotai, which are the end of the book of Leviticus. And this was actually my daughter, my older daughter's bat mitzvah portion. Um, and I have way more things to say and read and study in this Parsha than we'll have time for today. So we'll see what, we'll see where we get to and what we get. Uh, by way of orientation, um, this is the climax of the book of Leviticus. And it is a, um, it's a grand climax because it describes our, the relationship that God instructs us to have with the earth itself. Um, how we are supposed to relate to the land. And uh, in this case, we have a lot to learn from our agrarian ancestors who had, in order to survive, had to learn how to live in some kind of sustainable rhythm with the earth so that the earth could feed them. And for a conceptual framework of what our relationship to the earth is different than the capitalist, contemporary, as my daughter's, I've been learning from my daughter's uh, various readings that she's doing, extractionist. There are all these words to describe extractive economy um, that describe um, the, the, the way our dominant themes are of the earth as a commodity to be exploited. We all know about this and we know where it has led us. Um, and Bahar is a really important portion and Bukukotai. Bahar describes how we are to relate to the earth in the theme of the Bible, the, the, in the overarching um, uh, rhythm of the Bible, which is seven. Not only do we give on the seventh day a rest to everything under our control, but in the seventh year, we give the entire earth a rest called a sabbatical. And it is that rhythm of sevens that is the sacred uh, uh, template of the universe for the Torah. And we've discussed this. Uh, the earth is created in seven days and the seventh day is always a day to reset, to reflect, to let go, to release. The seventh year, always a year to reflect, to let go, to give up control and allow a reset and a replenishment and a rest for the earth. Um, 
chapter. So that's what happens in Bihar, which is actually only one long chapter. In Bechukotai, which follows immediately, it describes the consequences of fulfilling this relationship, this rhythmic relationship of working, but then allowing to restore. You know, remember that word uh, when God rested on the seventh day, vayin nafash, it says God's restored, God's nefesh, God's spirit. So we also, the earth has to be restored with a rest, um, replenished. Uh, and then it describes what will happen if we do not fulfill this rhythm and this sacred relationship. And it, what follows then is quite harrowing, downright biblical, as you would say, in the description of the consequences of us not allowing the land to rest. We are living now in those biblical terms. So what seems hyperbole may not be, sadly. Um, and given our, <laughs> given our current reality, it deserves to be read. These are the consequences. Imagine in the, in the uh, poetic language of the Bible, if we do not. The, the, the portion, the way Torah works, um, as we know, is it uses specific phrases and words to like offset sections. So I want to share the screen and show you how the language of the Torah indicates that, this, that these chapters are, um, are extremely important. Here, let me, uh, this is what I want. Uh, let's see, I'm not gonna become a sustainer right now. I wanna close that. I will do that though, I promise. There. Alrighty, can you all see that? Okay, good. Here's how Parshat Bahar, chapter 25 begins. yod heh oh, by the way, you know, this translation is the JPS translation. I'm using it because Safaria is such a beautiful presentation. But I want to point out, as we have over the years, that when we're talking about the life of the universe, the source of life, yod heh vav um, you could put in a different word, the great spirit. Um, as native uh, um, uh, usages often get translated to English. Uh, the creator, um, uh, the source of all, or as the Haftorah in Jeremiah calls God, um, the source of living waters. Use some beautiful phrase so that you understand that we're talking about the, um, the, the, the template the matrix, the source of all is speaking to us, okay? If we just say, Lord, we're gonna go into that sort of um, very narrow binary kind of uh, up there down here, and that's not the thrust of these teachings. The beloved, the mystery, the source of life, choose it, but as you hear this, please insert something different that speaks in that way. And then it says, oh, so, but here's the key word, Bahar Sinai, on Mount Sinai. The last time we heard about something coming from on Mount Sinai, it's mentioned once at the beginning of Leviticus, and then in the book of Exodus. So we've received all of these statements. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, it says it all through Leviticus. And now as we reach the end, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. When we get to the end of 
this three-chapter segment, Bahar and Bechukotai, the phrase is, and rather than scroll all the way there and make your eyes go funny, I'll just read it to you. At the end of all these instructions, it says, and these are the laws, rules, and instructions that yod Vavi established through Moses on Mount Sinai with the Israelite people. So when the Torah, uh, the, the Torah is constructed in an A, B, B, A kind of way, it will repeat the first sentence at the end to show you that there's a structure here. And so the fact that Mount Sinai is invoked tells you that we're on the mountaintop here with some crucial instructions. <sighs> okay, so here's how it goes. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I assigned to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Okay, let's replace Lord with a Shabbat Ladonai, a Sabbath of the great spirit, a Sabbath of the source of creation. So six years you may sow your field and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, Shabbat, Shabbaton. That's how Hebrew works. It, uh, when it repeats a, a word, it's emphatic. A Sabbath of Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, the great spirit. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Do not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. The land gets Shabbos. During this time, you can eat whatever the land will produce. Not just you, but you, your female and male slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you and your cattle and beasts. What does beasts mean? Um, uh, chaya. Beast means undomesticated animals. Beast means the jackals and the wild this is and the, that. In other words, the land becomes ownerless. In this conceptual universe, you give up any claim of ownership because it's not yours in the first place. And so what uh, Rabbi David Seidberg expresses beautifully in his writing about all this is that this echoes the Garden of Eden where you and the animals and I, you, of all the fruits of the garden you may eat and everything is ownerless. It belongs to God in the Garden of Eden. And the seventh year is like a return to that state of ownerlessness. Um, I love that image. Imagine, again, the concept here is, is as important as the act. Imagine if we, as us, a culture, a people, humanity, was able to conceptualize our, our relationship to the land as temporary users, as the fundament of our relationship. And how do we remember that? By every seventh year, giving up that ownership. It's so related to the idea of Shabbat every seventh day. It's the same idea writ in the largest sense. Because remember on the seventh day, we're commanded that we do not get to make anyone who's usually under our control work, not even our animals. That's the rule for Shabbat. We give up the illusion of control. 
Um, if we don't, re if we don't regularly, and I'd say this is true about the ego, about everybody's ego, if we don't regularly remind our ego that it is not the boss, we forget. We get lost in our own story about trying to make the world in our own image, right? About making it the way it should be. And Shabbat and sabbatical are these, are these to me just dramatic opportunities if we make them a regular part of our spiritual practice to know that we're not in charge so that when we come back to our work life, which is what humans do, right? We domesticate things. That's what we do. Uh, when we come back to our work, we do it with a light touch. We do it knowing that this is a gift that's been given to us, not some birthright. Um, I was reading um, a lovely interpretation of the first chapter of Genesis, which where humans are the last thing created on the sixth day and how we usually think of that as the pinnacle of creation, the evolutionary tree. What if we're the least? I realized I could read that to the last, the youngest child. And I realized for the, you know, that I could read Genesis that way too. Um, here's, here's this incredible garden I'm putting you in. Remember, your, everything's your brother and sister, everything's your sibling to speak of um, uh, in sort of the language of Native American myths that I'm familiar with. All the creatures are your siblings, father, son, you know, sister moon, mother earth, everything's a sacred relationship. And look, you get to be here. And that's what the sabbatical is supposed to remind us. A right relationship with the earth. And it's so profound right now for us to embrace this wisdom. Um, and then it describes something called the Jubilee year that you count off seven weeks of years. And on the, after 49 years, there's a 50th year when not only do you let the land rest, but if, you, if someone has lost their land holding due to misfortune and have had to make themselves into a day laborer or an indentured servant, there's this crazy idea in the Torah that every 50 years, Anything you've acquired in terms of land over those 50 years, you give back to the original owner so that everyone can have a right livelihood and a means of supporting themselves. Now, I've read a lot about this. We don't know if the Jubilee year was ever actually successfully practiced. It goes so much against <laughs> human nature. Who was gonna enforce this incredible rule? But whether it exact happened this way or not, the concept is sublime. The concept is sublime. And it describes then in detail that the way the Jubilee year worked is say you leased someone's field. Depending on how many years there were till the next Jubilee would depend how much you pay for it because you're paying for the, your, the harvests not the land itself. You could claim the harvest of the land, but you could not claim the land. And then it explains why. And then it says, and if you do so, you will have bounteous produce. And then it says, but you cannot sell the land for the land, the Aretz is mine, says the great spirit. You are but Gerim Toshavim, 
strangers. That's a, in this case, that's not a great translation. You are but residents with me, leaseholders. You're here not as owners, but as tenants on the good earth. So I'm not going to describe the rest of this chapter, which then is still very beautiful about how, you're, how you must release debts and release the people who are under you and all kinds of giving away. Um, I'm gonna go to the beginning of Bukhukotai where it says, after all these descriptions, if you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, which laws and which commandments? This is not pulled out of the air. This is the direct continuation of what's been described. Then I will grant your rains in their season so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. And your threshing shall overtake the vintage, and your vintage shall overtake the sowing. In other words, you will have abundance if you follow this right relationship with the land. You shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely. You shall dwell securely in harmony with. And then, the Bible gets, goes further and says, I will grant peace in the land, shalom. And you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. And I will give the land respite from vicious beasts and no sword shall cross your land. In fact, you'll give chase to your enemies. They shall fall before you by the sword. And then it says, I will look with favor upon you, make you fertile and multiply you, and I will maintain my covenant with you. And you shall eat old grain long stored, and you shall have to clear out the old to make room for the new. And I will establish and dwell in your midst, and I will not reject you. I will be ever present in your midst. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And then it says this amazing line. I, Yudhevave, am your God who brought you out from the land of the Egyptians to be their slaves no more, who broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I love that metaphor. We can't walk erect when we're yoked. Someone has to liberate us so that we can walk erect. So if we're walking erect, there's something that says, we are now the stewards of our faith. And uh, we're in our full humanity. And then it says, but if you do not obey me and do not observe, all of these commandments, if you reject my laws and spurn my rules, then I will wreak misery upon you. Okay, get ready, everybody. Consumption and fever, which cause the eyes to pine, the body to languish. You shall sow your seed to no purpose, your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be routed by your enemies and your foes shall dominate you. You shall flee though none pursues. You're gonna hear this several times. You will be running scared. You'll be freaking out. You will be lost in anxiety and fear, even if no one's pursuing you. And then in the rhythm of biblical language, if for all that you do not obey me, I will go on to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. So there's the seven. You'll hear this over and over. I will break your proud glory. 
your pride. And I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper so that your strength shall be spent to no purpose. Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. And it goes on. And if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to obey me, I will go on smiting you sevenfold. I will loose wild beasts against you, bereave you of your children and wipe out your cattle. They shall decimate you and your road shall be deserted. And if you don't do this, I will smite you sevenfold. I will bring a sword against you to wreak vengeance for the covenant, the covenant that you have abandoned. Now, by the way, let's pause here. No, no, I'll come, keep that in mind, covenant. You won't have enough to eat, but you'll never, and though you eat, you will not be satisfied. So these fates are both physical and spiritual. And if you still disobey me, I will discipline you sevenfold. Oh my goodness, you'll wind up debased to eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. And your, cult, your, your religious places will be destroyed. And I will heap your carcasses on your lifeless idols. I will spurn you. I will lay your cities in ruins. I will make the land desolate. And I will scatter you among the nations. You should, your land shall become a desolation and your cities a ruin. And here's the key line. We are going to be completely lost, scattered, debased. Then shall the land make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that it is desolate. And you are in the land of your enemies. Then shall the land rest and make up for its Sabbath years. So if we think of this not again as a, a commanding and vengeful God, but as a possible way of understanding what happens when one does not live in right relationship to the land that sustains you. The iron, the skies turn to iron and the land to copper. The land will replenish itself, but only in your absence. I feel that way about Mother Earth, that God forbid if the worst, the worst happens, Mother Earth will, will rebalance and life will grow again, but not with us in it. And then what's going to happen to us in this condition, in this, in this condition of alienation from the life force that gives us life? For those of you who survive, I will cast a faintness into their hearts. In the land of the enemies, the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. Fleeing as though from the sword, they shall fall, though none pursues. With no one pursuing, they shall stumble over one another as before the sword. You shall not be able to stand your ground before your enemies, but you shall perish among the nations. And you'll be heartsick, and eventually you, are you will confess. When I, in turn, have been hostile and have removed them into the land of their enemies, at last their stubborn hearts will humble and they shall atone. And I will be there and remember them. For the land shall be forsaken of them, making up for its Sabbath years by being desolate, while they atone for their iniquity, for the abundant reason that they rejected my rules and spurned my law. But I will remember them, whom I freed from the Egypt and the sight of the nations to be their guard. These are the laws, rules, and instructions that Yodhevavi established through Moses on Mount Sinai between himself and the entire people. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing. For now. Um, I think we're facing this existential crisis. 
And um, the Torah has a message for us. And I wanted to share a couple of other sources with you that share the same message. I welcome your uh, comments in the chat always, of course. Um, but this is where my mind turns to. Hold on, let me get the right. Uh, so I have been, whoops. There we go. I have been reading and rereading a book that many people are reading and rereading right now um, called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Timmerer. She is a botanist, ethnobotanist, and also a um, uh, Native American. She lives in upstate New York and she's doing this remarkable, she's a beautiful writer and she's doing this remarkable job of integrating scientific knowledge with Native American wisdom and presenting it in language that is very accessible. And what she calls what I would, what, what the Torah is describing as this sacred rhythm of rest and renewal for the land, she calls the honorable harvest. Beautiful phrase. Let me share something she wrote. <clears throat> this is just a brief excerpt. In this season of harvest, our baskets are full. So this is a fall, a, a, something written in the fall. Rounded with fragrant apples and heaped with winter squash. So too are the steel shopping carts that clatter across the parking lot. Plastic bags whipping in the wind. How do we even name such abundance? Are these commodities, natural resources, ecosystem services? In the indigenous worldview, we call them gifts. Now, what I wanna to propose to you is that the Torah is an indigenous document. It's written by our agrarian ancestors living on their land. And they too understand the harvest to be a gift. That's why there's the whole book of Leviticus is preoccupied with how we are to bring gifts in return of gratitude to the creator before we enjoy our harvest. That's what the whole sacrificial system is. We're not giving up our best, we're giving thanks with our best because we know that it's a gift. It's amazing to me, not amazing. I, it's always amazing to me that we Jews are still alive studying this document. And now us urbanized, scattered, very modern Jews can reach back to this literature and recognize that it's got this indigenous wisdom in it. So let me read some of Robin Wall Kimmer because she speaks in our idiom, but I think it's the same message. We are showered every day with the gifts of the earth, air to breathe, fresh water, the companionship of geese and maples and food. Since we lack the gift of photosynthesis, we animals are destined by biology to be utterly dependent upon the lives of others. The inherently generous, more than human persons with whom we share the planet. Keep listening, it's so beautiful. If we understand the earth as just a collection of objects, then apples and the land that offers them fall outside our circle of moral consideration. We tell ourselves that we can use them however we please because their lives don't matter. But in a worldview that understands them as persons, their lives matter very much. Recognition of personhood does not mean that we don't consume, but that we are accountable for the lives that we take. When we speak of the living world as kin, we are also called to act in new ways, so that when we take those lives, we must do it in such a way that brings honor to the life that is taken and honor to the ones receiving. 
So here's this beautiful way of saying that, what if we treated every other living thing as not a thing, which is what English makes it, but as a being, a being as worthy as ourselves, as alive as ourselves, as individual as ourselves. As I try to grasp this and kind of work it into my consciousness, I can't look at animals or flowers. I look at a bird building a nest and I grew up, wow, isn't it amazing? Birds aren't smart, but they can build nests, right? That's how I grew up because that's what I grew up with. And it's slowly cranking myself around. I'm not a country boy, you know, to saying, oh my God, the intelligence present in all of these creatures is mind blowing. By naming them as Robin Wall Kimmerer does, she doesn't say the maple, she capitalizes maple in her writing so she can address it. Um, I'm finding it so helpful. And it again brings me back to the Torah where in the Garden of Eden it says, and God formed the human out of the clay of the earth, blew the spirit of life into it, and it became a living being. And then Adam, God takes Adam, which means the human, and places him in the garden and brings all the creatures before Adam, who, if you recall, gives them names. Naming is a way of giving I giving a discrete identity to. If Adam is naming all of the creatures and plants in the garden, Adam is developing a relationship with all of them who pre-exist him. And our dominating um, story of, of domination might be reframed as a story of cohabitation. So, Everything isn't a thing anymore. And I don't know what to do with my English language. You know, I'm gonna work on this. And think about the sabbatical year when the return to that, prime, that, that Edenic state is supposed to be reestablished where we are not higher than any of these other creatures. We are with them, enjoying and benefiting from the gifts of the great spirit. So she says, the canon of indigenous principles that govern the exchange of life for life is known as the honorable harvest. They are rules of sorts, shall we say mitzvot, that govern our taking so that the world is as rich for the seventh generation as it is for us. Isn't it fascinating that the Iroquois, that they came up with the idea of the seventh generation and that number seven is there? I wonder where seven lives in the cosmic patterning of consciousness. The honorable harvest, a practice both ancient and urgent, applies to every exchange between people and the earth. Its protocol is not written down, but if it were, it would look something like this. Ask permission of the ones whose lives you seek. Abide by the answer. Never take the first, never take the last. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Take only what you need and leave some for others. Remember, do not Harvest the corners of your field. Leave them for the poor and the stranger. Use everything that you take. Take only that which is given to you. Share it as the earth has shared with you. Be grateful. Reciprocate the gift. Sustain the ones who sustain you and the earth will last forever. And if you do not follow my commandments, the earth will turn to uh, copper 
and the skies to iron and spit you out. Uh, let's see, how much longer does this go? Not too much longer, why don't I read it? Though we live in a world made of gifts, we find ourselves harnessed to institutions and an economy that relentlessly ask, what more can we take from the earth? In order for balance to occur, we cannot keep taking without replenishing. Don't we need to ask what we can give? What can we give? The honorable harvest is a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the land. This simple list may seem like a quaint prescription for how to pick berries, but it is the root of a sophisticated ethical protocol that could guide us in a time when unbridled exploitation threatens the life that surrounds us. Western economies and institutions enmesh us all in a profoundly dishonorable harvest. Collectively, by assent or by an action, we have chosen the policies we live by. We can choose again. What if the honorable harvest were the law of the land and humans, not just plants and animals, fulfilled the purpose of supporting the lives of others? What would the world look like if a develop, developer poised to convert a meadow to a shopping mall at first to ask permission of the metal arts and the golden one and abide by their answer? What if we fill our shopping baskets with only that which is needed and give something back in return? How can we reciprocate the gifts of the earth? In gratitude, in ceremony, through acts of practical reverence and land stewardship? in fierce defense of the places we love, in art, in science, in song, in gardens, in children, in ballots, in stories of renewal, in creative resistance, in how we spend our money and our precious lives by refusing to be complicit with the forces of ecological destruction. Whatever our gift, we are called to give it and dance for the renewal of the world. Oh, thanks, Ellen. Um, now I want to go back to the term covenant that gets used in our Torah portion numerous times. The sacred, remember, covenant is a sacred mutual relationship that we enter into with the great spirit and with the earth. That's our covenant. And yes, there's the covenant at Mount Sinai which is the specific covenant of the children of Israel with the creator to fulfill this Torah. But that covenant is always couched in the first covenant, which is the covenant of the rainbow, the covenant that God makes with all creatures on earth after the flood. And God said, here is the sign I am giving you of the covenant between me and you and every living being with you. Down to the last generation, I have placed my rainbow in the cloud. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I cause clouds to form over the earth and the bow appears in the cloud, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living beings, all flesh, and never again shall the waters become a flood to destroy all flesh. I will remember the everlasting covenant between me and all living beings, all that live upon earth. I love that. I love those, those verses in the book of Noah. I mean, in the portion of Noah. Barb, can I read your message? Uh, she says, I watched an adult male rose, rose-breasted grosbeak this morning as he watched, observed a blue jay eating suet. He had tried to attach himself to the holder but wasn't managing it. And then after he watched for a while, he figured it out. Yes, I am such a, I'm such a city boy. It's like, I really wanna focus on this in my life now. 
and look at creatures in a way I haven't looked at them before and look at plants in a way I haven't looked at them before. And the way Robin Wall Kimmerer states it, see them as my brothers and sisters in, in, in life. Um, okay, so I, I, I have one more reference. Oh, let's see, and Avigal wrote, when it is written the land that I have given you, it reminds us that the land is spirit. There is no separation, thank you. So the rabbis would choose a portion from the prophets um, called the Haftorah. Um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm seeing what's coming in on the chat. I'll read that in a moment. In order to amplify the message of the Torah portion. And uh, I want to read you some of the Haftorah that, that comes from for the portion of the Fukotai. Ruth Hirsch, quoting Henry David Thoreau. If a man walks in the woods for love of them, for love of them, half of each day, he is in danger of being regarded as a loafer. But if he spends his day as a speculator, shearing off those woods and making the earth bald before her time, he is deemed an industrious and enterprising citizen. Important. Naomi McCann's daughters have been recommending. Did you mean that book, Naomi, or that food? <laughs> book, yes. Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm sort of reading it in bed at night before I go to bed. It's making a huge impression on me. It's, it's, it's one of those books. Um, Rob says, in addition to plants and animals, let's not forget the rocks and the air. I completely agree, Rob. Thank you. I need to change my vocabulary. Every being is a thou. This was um, in, in uh, Martin Booper's I and Thou. I remember he speaks specifically about how you encounter a tree. If you encounter it as an it, then you view it in terms of its utility to you. If you encounter the tree as a thou, as a you, as a person, a non-human person with personhood, then you encounter it as a sacred being, animate or not. So now let me share some Jeremiah with you. In fact, why don't I bring it up on the, uh, on the screen uh, so you can see the words. Hold on, I just have to search for it. Um, okay, get back, Jeremiah. There we go, chapter 16. Amazing technology. Okay, hold on, let me share the screen with you. Here's where the Haftorah begins. Oh, great spirit. <laughs> Enid says, I was with a medicine man who looked at a flock of chattering crows and said, intelligentsia. And stones are animate. They just have a much slower consciousness. I agree. If consciousness inheres in creation, then it inheres everywhere. <sighs> Thank God. When we commune, when we're blessed with moments of communion with the world around us, we're partaking of shared consciousness. Here's where the Haftorah begins. Oh, Yudhevave, oh great spirit, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in a day of trouble. To you, nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers inherited utter delusions, false gods, empty and useless. Can a man make gods for himself? They're not gods. So there we go. This isn't just about wooden or stone idols, right? This is about our right relationship with creator and creation. 
Assuredly, I will teach them. Once and for all, I will teach them my power and my might, and they shall learn that my name is life unfolding. And then it says, um, I'm going to go to verse five, just for the interest of time. Thus said life unfolding. Cursed he who trusts in mortals, who makes mere flesh, mortal flesh, their strength and turns his thoughts from the great spirit. Okay? Do you understand what this means in this case? It, it means, again, who, who thinks that one's own power and might and will are what are worthy of worship and of sacred relationship. What shall this person be like? Like a bush, a stunted tree in the desert, which does not sense the coming of good. It is set in the scorched places of the wilderness, in a barren land where no one dwells. That's what that relationship was like, unrooted, you know, barely connected to the earth that sustains us. But blessed is the one who trusts in life unfolding, whose trust is in life unfolding alone. He shall be, and here's the famous line, like a tree planted by the waters. That's where the spiritual comes from. He shall not be moved. It sends forth its roots by a stream. It does not care, sense the coming of heat, for its leaves are ever fresh. It has no concern in a year of drought. It does not cease to yield fruit. When in right relationship, in sacred, honorable relationship, we are inevitably as sustained as the sustenance we offer. We are sustained by that relationship. And then he changes tone and he says, I love this line. Most devious is the human heart. It is perverse. Who can fathom it? I love this line. Ain't it the truth? Like what, what's with us? It's staring us in the face that, you know, how we're supposed to live. But I, life unfolding, probe the heart, search the mind, and repay every person according to his ways with the proper fruit of his deeds. And so like a partridge hatching what she did not lay, so is one who amasses wealth by unjust means. In the middle of his life, it will leave him. And in the end, he will be proved a fool. So not only for an individual, but for us collectively, we are taking what is not ours and hoarding it. And it is going to collapse. We, our, our structure is going to collapse. That is the metaphor for this moment in human history. You'll be proved a fool. Oh, throne of glory. Oh, exalted from old. Oh, sacred shrine. Oh, hope of Israel. Oh, Lord. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those in the land who turn from you shall be doomed. For they are forsaken. yod And here's one of the best biblical names of God. Makor Mayim Chayim. I would capitalize all of these because it's a proper name. The Fount of Living Waters. That's a great name for the great spirit, isn't it? And then Jeremiah says, he prays, heal me, living waters. Let me be healed. Save me. Let me be saved. For you are my glory. And that's where they end the Haftorah. The rabbis took the liberty to, to uh, decide where to begin and end these excerpts. 
Isn't that a magnificent passage? Um, one of the things that obviously animates me is the desire to connect this ancient indigenous wisdom of ours with contemporary accounts of indigenous wisdom. I hope I've successfully merged them for you today. And uh, we've used up our time. I've used it up. But if anyone wants, has anything else they want to comment, we're a small group, feel free to unmute yourselves before we move on towards the prayers that we we're going to recite. Mm, thank you. Myrna? I know, I know that you, I know that I've asked before, um, is there any, have, have, in the last year or so, have you found any documentation about what the celebration of the Jubilee year would be like? I mean, has anybody ever done it? No, we have evidence, not that I'm aware of, we have evidence that the sabbatical year was actually right, followed. And the sabbatical year is followed today in modern Israel, this coming year, starting when the shofar blasts this fall is the next sabbatical year. Uh, but oh, wow. Jubilee okay. year exists only for me in concept. I do not know if it was ever actually engaged. The, this idea of radically redistributing um, uh, it, it, the land. It always, it always seemed to me like a great idea, but I couldn't understand how you could do it. So. Well, you could only do it if you have, Ellen, I'll, I'll hear you in a second. You could only do it if you had buy-in from everybody, Myrna. Yeah, well. Everyone had to understand, everyone had to understand the covenantal relationship they had entered into, that the land is not theirs. See, this is how I could imagine it happening. If the entire society, or shall I say entire, if the vast majority of the society really truly bought into this worldview, that the land is not ours, that it's a gift from the great spirit and that no one owns it. We only get to enjoy the produce of it as the Torah says. The stewardship, yeah. If there was enough buy-in, then the society would enact that. And the, those who held out would be pressured into. So a good society, you know, we've experienced in our lifetimes moments when the social compact, the covenant of being an American has moved us forward because enough people bought into it. And times when like now, when it's fractured because not enough people buy into it. So I could actually imagine now that I'm thinking out loud, Myrna, a society that did enact this. I mean, for goodness sakes, the native tribes uh, uh, who were here didn't even understand land ownership. It wasn't even a concept that they had when the white folks arrived from Europe. So why couldn't that have been true in ancient times? So I'll take it back. Maybe human nature is more malleable uh, than we think based on what the beliefs of your society are. Ellen? Thank you. I, yeah. I love that you've put this together this way. So explicitly and wonderfully it's um robin comes off my bookcase back to my night table but it's it's like all the indigenous cultures not only the native americans though they're fabulous example but every indigenous culture understands a different relationship with the earth and that we really need that's right. Thank you so much for relating it so clearly to, to Torah and to now and the whole deal. I'm thrilled. Thank you. Thank you. Leah? Would it be unrealistic to equate the trees and all these things that we're talking about to our own bodies? Because we can't will our bodies to stay alive, to be well to do all the things we want our bodies to be. And the, our bodies are not ours. They're only here temporarily. Oh, that's beautiful, Leah. I'm with you all the way. Thank you. Yes, it, it's a perfectly appropriate. And I'll read that Naomi's comment. There's a wonderful book called 
behaving, behaving as if the God in all life mattered by Machael Small Wright. I read it years ago and it speaks to the intelligence in all life. She has a garden home healing center, Caralandra. Thank you, Naomi. Paul Bloom says, Jeremiah rocks, I agree. Uh, Rob Saffer says, there's something called a B-Core, B-Labs, that governs corporate behavior, not solely on profits, but on satisfying all stakeholders. Patagonia, for example. So there's a movement toward higher purpose businesses. Yes, I'm aware of it. May it come, may it burgeon and grow. Oh, thanks everybody. I'm gonna conclude the recording and then uh, we'll say our healing prayer.